Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to Temi O about her debut novel, Do You Dream of Terror 2? Temio graduated from King's College London with a BSI in Neuroscience. While at KCL, Temi founded and ran a book club called Neuroscience Fiction, where she led discussions about science fiction novels which focus on the brain, and began working on Do You Dream of Terror 2, her debut novel, which we're going to talk about today. In 2016, she received an MA in Creative Writing from the University of Edinburgh. Temi, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi. So, how would you describe the novel, first of all? Um, so, when an Earth-like planet is found in a neighbouring solar system, a group of astronauts are selected to travel there. Um, the journey will take 23 years, so they have to be, um, half of them are sort of 18, 19. And um, the story focuses a lot on their last day on Earth and kind of the psychology of leaving Earth forever and leaving their family forever. All of them have different reasons why they want to go on this journey. So, And so... What was the inspiration behind the book for you? Um, Yeah, well, I started writing it just before I went to university. Uh, I took a gap year and I was working in a science fiction and fantasy bookstore called Pulp Fiction. And I remember it was the day before my birthday and I told the sort of our manager that um, it's my birthday tomorrow and he asked what are you going to do and I initially thought he meant what are you going to do for your birthday but he was like you're never going to be 18 again what are you going to do for the rest of the day and I remember walking home and suddenly feeling really sad because it occurred to me yeah I'm never ever going to be 18 again and also I sort of felt like I was leaving quite a lot behind because I was going to university and it was only I'd been so excited about leaving school but I realised that now all my friends were going to different cities and we'd never be in the same city again. I wouldn't see them every single day as I had for the past couple of years and I wouldn't live with my siblings and I have three other siblings. We wouldn't live together in the same way again. And uh, I remember just feeling really sad about it. So this book is sort of like born of that idea of um, leaving things behind. And um, yeah, like the stories we tell ourselves to make that feel okay. Yeah. So before we talk about any of the characters in the book. The book is set in 2012, so slightly in the past, mm-hmm. despite this being a story 
about a group of astronauts who are off on a you know interstellar space flight to to colonize a extrasolar planet um and so i want to talk about why you set it slightly in the past yeah um i remember at the time thinking i wanted it to be as recognizable as possible uh, so the year I started writing it was 2012. And it also uh, was kind of the first year I'd really thought a lot about being British. Um, because like my parents are Nigerian. And um, for about half of my gap year, I went to Ghana where my mom was working. And then I came back and the London Olympics were on. And I remember seeing on the screen, they had like this like black young woman with an afro and during the opening ceremony it sort of like had this little narrative where she meets this guy and loses his number and I remember just being really moved because I guess it wasn't until I left and I went to Ghana that people were telling me that I was British because I spent all this time in England and people you know if you're black people are like where are you from and yet on TV I saw like this like black woman representing Britain and so I had this sort of like I guess, yeah, it sort of was the first time I ever felt British. So I think that's partly like that kind of feeling of like patriotic fervour that was going around the country at the time. Uh, Because it was the Olympics, I sort of tried to capture that energy in this book, in this like space mission. So, of course, if you're writing a, a novel set in the future, you have to then design a future. Yeah, that's um, true. And setting it in the in the present day ish sort of means that you don't necessarily have to do that. But what you have had to do is retrofit yeah. the history of the space <laughs> so have race, like an alternate history. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so tell me about that. How you worked that out? Um, yeah, so I wanted. I basically looked through the history of space travel and thought about what I wanted to keep. So I went to the British Interplanetary Society and I saw um, that. Uh, they had this giant picture of um, William Congreve in like the 1800s. He invented the Congreve rocket. So that had a lot to do with like the technology that we use for rocketry. So I kind of I kept that in the story. And then uh, I also have Neil Armstrong does land on the moon. Uh, but then shortly after the USSR land on Mars. And now in 2012, where uh, Britain is sort of at the stage where they're capable of um, interplanetary travel, well, interstellar travel, yeah. But Neil Armstrong wouldn't have landed on the moon in 1969 in this version. It would have been like, it's like around the First World War or something. I yeah, to remember, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about the, okay, the astronomer Tessa Dalton, who is the person that first, and discovers, discovers is not necessarily the right word, discovers Tess, uh, Terra too, but she's the first person to sort of, conceptualize it I guess Um, and then you know things happen to her tell us something about her and her place in the history oh yeah I'm actually really glad you asked about her Um, she and her father are both astronomers and her father discovers these two stars like Dalton stars A and B and she sort of figures out a way of calculating from the way that the light sort of like wobbles that there is a planet circulating around these two stars and that turns out to be true but people only find this out slightly later but then her diaries are filled with like drawings of the planet and she believes that it's habitable she believes that groups of people are going to one day travel there and then um shortly like slightly after she's sectioned and she dies um in an institution later on sort of almost a century later my astronauts have kind of a lot of people have they kind of see her as a prophet now because her predictions a lot of them have turned out to be true and there isn't any way of 
knowing how she had known. And there's this slightly weird statue of her at the school. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That lots of the parents complain about, yeah. Um, So let's talk about the idea of of Terra 2 then, this this planet. Um, At the beginning of the book, before this voyage, which is supposed to be travelling there, sets off, what do we know about it? Um, So they know that it's habitable, um, and they've also sort of sent kind of an equivalent of like a Mars rover, like a sort of robot that takes pictures and sends them back. And so they have they have like a few, they have a, a couple of images of like the ocean and things like that, but no humans have landed there. And so what type of person would choose to, to leave Earth forever and, and go there? Yeah, I, I think I was thinking that it... It's almost like it requires an act of faith to go then when so little is known about it and you have to give up so much, especially like the young astronauts, basically are training since for like half of their childhood and then they're going to leave their family behind, they leave everything behind and then they're on this journey which is kind of perilous. And so I was thinking to do that, knowing so little, the sort of gap is faith. Like you need to come up with a story, a kind of mythology of why you're going and all of them have like a different story they tell themselves. And this is a book that's full of faith and different ideas of faith as well. Yeah. Tell me something about that. It's a, you know, it's a it's a science fiction book, but it's, you know, it's full of different ideas and different religions. Yeah, so um so I have like Astrid and Juno. Astrid kind of and her their parents, they're twins, Astrid and Juno, and their father is a missionary, uh which I sort of thought was kind of a little bit analogous to their journey in that he goes somewhere, it's dangerous, but he's doing it for a purpose and he's sort of driven by this like kind of divine idea of like destiny. But they sort of interpret this in different ways. Like Astrid um, really believes that Tessa Dalton is a prophet. And she starts to kind of get the idea that maybe she is too. She's having these dreams of terror too. She thinks that they're that they're true. And um, she believes that when they go there, it'll be almost like, like the Garden of Eden or something, like perfect. Whereas um, Juno's a lot more practical. She believes a lot more in, I guess, like human ingenuity and human will. And she thinks that so many things have gone wrong on Earth. Climate change has happened and wars have happened. Uh, and this is our chance to start again and, like, fix history. Yeah. Um, and there's this group, the uh, the new creationists, that yeah. Astrid becomes sort of obsessed with as well. Who are they? Yeah, so I, I had an idea that... Um, I think this pretty much happens... I don't know, I guess, like, big development like this would happen. I, I think a group of people would sort of build up a sort of... I guess, theory around it. So the new creationists believe that Tessa Dalton was a prophet and she's kind of like their martyr. And they think that a chosen few are going to go to Terra 2 and that it's like, yeah, like an Eden or Atlantis, like a promised land and that Astrid is one of them. And I suppose like psychologically that probably really suits her to believe when she's on this journey. Yeah. Also, I mean, it's it's very light touching the book, but it you can't get away from the idea that this is also a story that's about colonialism. They are mm. going to, you know, conquer this planet and change it. And there's a sort of a debate about, you know, whether or not you go into this new Eden to to make a better job of it. And there's someone, I think it's, 
I think it's Harry that says at some point, you know, why we're fine, you know, we're do- we're doing okay. Why can't we just go and sort of carry on? Yeah, it's true. He kind of says, yeah, why can't? He even says empire. At yeah, some point, I think he's he? like, yeah. this is another chance for Britain to sort of stretch out yeah. and like build Britain somewhere else. Um, yeah, and I, I guess even though like they're young people, uh, I guess I was sort of saying you can't get away from that kind of historical baggage. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Temi O, and we're talking about her book, Do You Dream of Terror Too? And Temi, in, in the second half, let's spend some time talking about some of the characters. And there are, you know, there are a whole cast of characters, and indeed you tell the story from a multiple character perspective. So let's talk about why you did that, first of all. Um, yeah, well, I was thinking a lot about one writer that I really love, uh, which I always feel is really like obvious non-hipster choice is Ian McEwan. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I really loved his book Atonement. And I remember thinking, so you like follow these characters throughout the day and it's from different points of view. And then there's this scene where they're sitting at the dinner table and they're all sort of like communicating with each other on like different levels of understanding. All of them have had different interactions with each other and some of them are keeping secrets from the other ones. But because you've been in all of their heads, you have this like God's eye view of all the characters. And I remember just thinking, this is a great feeling. <laughs> like, I, I love that feeling. And I mean, since none of us are God, um, we can only get that feeling in fiction. And so I kind of tried to recreate it here as well. You understand all the characters and their motivations and their sort of like 
the secrets between each other and their childhoods. So I was hoping that kind of towards the end, you have this real sympathy for all of them. Let's talk about some of the characters then. So first of all, there's a a smaller senior crew group of people. Tell us some, about some of those people. So, yeah, we have Igor, um, who is very old, and he worked as a cosmonaut for the USSR. But then, for reasons that are later revealed, <laughs> um, he switches and um, begins to work for the British and kind of makes a pact with them that they have to let him go on this journey too, even though he's really old and he won't make it to Terra too. He'll, he's likely to die on the way. Um, and then there's um, Solomon Shepard, who's their commander, who at the time, I liked to think that he isn't much older than them. But when you're about 18, 19, everyone who's a little bit older seems ancient. Yeah, like he's clearly in his early 30s. Yeah, isn't he? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was the youngest man on Mars. And I, I like to think that like he only a little while ago has gone through what they've gone through. But they think, oh, he'll never understand us. And um, he's left his wife and like really young son behind Um and he believes that he's kind of preparing a place for them um, on Terra 2. And that, like, soon, after, after they've sort of established a colony there, that his wife will join him and his son and his grandchildren and they'll sort of live happily. Shall I tell you about the other yes, one? Yes, so, please. Right, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's um, Faye, who was sort of swapped in at the last moment. She wasn't really supposed to be, but she's the ship's medic. And um, for a lot of the time, she's a little bit resentful. She hasn't had the time to adjust to the fact that she's going on this journey too because she was at short notice told that she... Very short go. notice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's also um, Kai, who I really like. Yeah, uh, I really like Kai. He's the one I wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. Do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he worked on Mars as, like, the hydroponics expert and botanist. Um, on like a colony that's there and then he is chosen to help them on this journey but he has like a different I, I kind of liked to think that there are some people that going to space would be better than being on earth and for him he's like there is nothing that, about this journey that doesn't suit me like I don't really like people <laughs> yeah. but also he's been in space for a long time yeah. I find that really fascinating so that his his physiology has basically changed yeah yeah, so uh, because he's been on Mars, and Mars has slightly lower gravity than Earth, um, your bones kind of start to lose density. And um, so, yeah, he has, like, thinner bones. And so when he when he's in the part of the ship that has, like, Earth gravity, it's a lot of effort for him. Um, so he lives in the garden where it's, like, slightly less gravity. <laughs> yeah, um, I found that quite interesting. Like, um, when I was um, reading about space physiology, how... Uh, quickly our bodies actually adapt to low gravity and I was reading that if someone if someone was born on Mars their bones would develop completely differently so they wouldn't be able to withstand the gravity of Earth which is quite interesting and he's literally like he's seven foot tall nearly, yeah. because he's you know not only has his bones become weakened but they've sort of elongated as well which is fascinating um so then there's the the beta group who are the the six students um again I don't want to talk too much about what happens but you know quite near the beginning of the book there's an incident so the the six that actually leave and not necessarily the six that we think are going to leave um you've mentioned uh juno and astrid first of all let's talk about um uh, poppy and harry perhaps oh yeah um so i sort of thought harry was actually a little bit of a challenge to write um because i thought that because like, he's a dick <laughs> yeah but um he was kind of the sort of 
character that he believes that he should be there, like that he deserves it. Like his um, brothers, his older two brothers, like rode in the Olympics. I sort of imagined them looking a bit like, oh, who are those twins who were in the Olympics who were like in the social network? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, well, I imagined them. (laughs) Yeah, like those were his older brothers. So he kind of feels like he deserves some glory. And um, for him, he's kind of had quite a short-term view of this mission. Um, He's, like, competed throughout school to get to this place, being the commander in training. And now he's kind of achieved his goal. He hasn't really thought about, like, what he's going to do next. So when he gets on Earth, he's having kind of the equivalent of, like, a midlife crisis, where he's like, I've achieved the thing I want to, but now there's no glory to be had in space. And... um, yeah, and so he ends up just being like quite unhappy and kind of flailing for purpose, and yeah, so that makes him a kind of unpleasant person to be around. And then Poppy comes from a, a completely different background to Harry. Yeah, yeah. So she sort of grew up in a council estate with this sort of like single mother who's kind of depressed and um, had boyfriends who were like borderline abusive. And um, yeah, I think a lot of people really love her story because it's kind of the opposite. There was she like it's no privilege that she had. And um, it was just kind of circumstances that meant like she learned to speak all these different languages because there are lots of people of different nationalities who are living on her like tower block. And she just worked really hard to try and make it onto the ship. And she did. And then just one, just one more Elliot, who who also I really loved. He's good. <laughs> Um, no sort of coincidence that he ends up working with Kai, but he's yeah. <laughs> you know the same the sort of person that just you know although he has you know he has troubles, but it feels like he was the right person to go. Yeah, he's quite introverted, but he's really clever. He's kind of this mechanics genius. Uh, I think I wrote that like he also likes playing guitar, and um, I write like these different algorithms, and he'd sort of see it a bit like music and. So he ends up on the ship and he's one of the youngest of them because he was the only one who was sort of specifically headhunted to join. So the school, so <laughs> they, they go to this Dalton Academy from, you know, as you said, very young teens and are there for like, you know, five years or something training for this mission. And I mean, I guess part of one of the themes of the book is just the ethics of that, you know, this idea that tell me something about the... Uh, the regime that they, these kids go through at that school. Yeah, it's true. Like, um, several of the children die during mm. this, like, during their training. I have, like, one of them dies in the, like, neutral buoyancy lab, which is, like, where astronauts often train. It's, like, a really, really deep pool. And it kind of, like, mimics the, like, not having gravity. So you sort of perform, like, procedures underwater. And there's a child who drowns. Um, they've also been selected from everyone else in the UK. And I kind of imagine that really high pressure, really competitive environment being actually a really unhealthy place for young people to grow up. But at the same time, it's hard to think of on, a, on alternative since they're young people who have to do a really difficult job. It's competitive to train to be an astronaut as an adult. And they're 14, 15 when they're chosen. And um, yeah, but I think when they're in space, a lot of the like scars, the psychological scars that they kind of developed there uh, kind of become more of a problem. And then I also sort of like the idea that there was this other debate going on that they were semi not aware of about whether or not it's okay to do this. And um, there are groups of people who say, well, no, they're young people. We're we're, We've kind of brainwashed them. And it's sort of abusive. And um, while they're in space, this sort of debate kind of like rages on on Earth. 
Yeah. And it's like both obviously this incredibly intense school and these are sort of, you know, the best of the best. But it also has this, you know, sort of reality TV aspect in that, you know, everybody's really into their lives and what they're doing. And they have fans who scream when they see yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, I sort of thought, yeah, that would probably happen. I mean, mm. it definitely has kind of happened around like Tim Peake, the like mm-hmm. British astronaut. And then also there was um, around 2012 when I started writing the book, the Mars One yeah. mission was looking like something that might actually happen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like time has proved differently. But um, there were groups of people who were in competition to be chosen for this mission. And, you know, it's it's hard not to look away when something like that mm-hmm. is happening. Yeah, I, I think it is something we're all interested in. Um, I just wanted to talk <laughs> about the, the ship, the Damocles. Tell me something about... I guess designing it, just envisaging that ship. Um, so I initially was thinking about space, uh, like how much space they should have. And I think there's a lot more tension when you have very little time alone. <laughs> so I made it so that they kind of basically live in bunk beds in like like the girls' rooms and the, the guys' rooms. And then there's also there's a space where the beta, the sort of young people live, and um, the older people live in another space. So then it kind of causes, I guess, psychologically, they start to feel like they, they are live, inhabiting, going on this mission in like a different kind of psychological space from the older people as well. Uh, and then I also had the garden um, where, uh, it, I mean, it sort of served one, like a practical purpose. Um, they have a lot of algae, which produces some of their oxygen. And they use the protein from the dried algae and put it in their food. But then also Kai, who's a botanist and hydroponics person, does a lot of research on lots of the food and they're trying to get some fresh food. So that's sort of a place where a lot of things happen as well. Um, And you mentioned Ian McEwan, but I wanted to talk about who else might have been an influence on your writing. Um, Yeah, I'd say Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, I really loved his Red Mars trilogy, which I kind of started in the middle of reading my book and then... Was really intimidated because it's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I loved that it was this like group of a hundred um, scientists who are going to colonize Mars, and um, there's like this Russian who's like, "We need to be socialist," and um, this sort of like American who's like, "No, we're gonna like mine Mars for resources and capitalism." Yeah. I actually think that book, as well as influencing me sort of in a literary way, definitely introduced my sort of like political beliefs as well. It was really influential when I read it. Yeah, so that. And then also really enjoyed Solaris by Stanislaw Slem. It's about a man who goes to another planet and the planet has kind of a consciousness. The ocean is conscious. And they're performing these experiments on the ocean, but it's performing experiments on them in the form of sort of visitations from figures from their past and for him it's his wife and I loved that it was about space and isolation but it was also about regret and grief and you could kind of you could read the journey in a psychological way as well as a like an actual journey he goes on just to finish off would you read us a bit um, so this is a scene from pretty early on in the book it's the day before the launch and two of the astronauts have met in the bathroom After her medical examination, Astrid found Ara throwing up in the toilet. Did they clear you? She asked, fingering the green cleared tag they had just snapped onto her wrist. Peering around the open door of the cubicle, Astrid recoiled at the pungent tang of vomit, clutching her own stomach. Are you sick? I'm not sick, Ara gasped finally, sitting up to wipe the side of her mouth and waving her own green wristband. 
There were butterflies in my stomach. Her eyes flitted back to the toilet as if they were actually in there, the butterflies, sunk in the water, papery wings dissolving in bile. Ara flushed and then got unsteadily to her feet. Closing the cubicle door behind her, she rinsed her mouth out in the sink. Astrid caught herself examining Ara's reflection in the mirror. She looked a little green and the skin under her eyes was dark. Ara smiled at Astrid's reflection in the glass. Ara was not beautiful, but she had inherited her Indian mother's thick black hair, which fell in heavy waves past her waist and smelled of the jasmine oil she rubbed into it. She had spent years of her childhood in the north, so her tongue tripped prettily over words like laugh and grass. In their first years at Dalton, she had told the other students that she could speak to the wind, and everyone had believed her or had wanted to believe her, because her eyes were black as magic, and sometimes when she spoke, a gust did pick up knocking leaves across the field. Astrid watched as her friend lifted her head and eclipsed the sun, which was beaming through the window behind her. She envied Ara. People who knew her had always been certain that she would be selected for the beta, that she belonged amongst the constellations. This is a great day. Ara turned to point to the dispersing clouds. Can you feel it too, Astrid? It's like being in love, you know? It's sweet. It's painful, almost. Everything is beautiful, but everything hurts. It's because we're saying goodbye all the time now, Astrid said. It's kind of exhausting. Ara turned and leant against the window ledge. When I was younger, I fell asleep on car journeys with my dad. I'd wake up in my bed the next day, sometimes with my shoes on under the duvet, and I'd known that he'd carried me, which I liked so much, that sometimes I'd just pretend to sleep as the car turned into our road so I could feel him lift me over his shoulder and put me into my room. One time I opened my eyes when my head hit the pillow and he told me that soon I'd be too old to be carried. It happened less and less until now, obviously. When I fall asleep in the car, he just wakes me and I walk to my bedroom and take my own shoes off. I think that's pretty normal, said Astrid. Their voices echoed slightly in the little room. I know, but the problem is that when I turned 12, I couldn't remember the last time he'd carried me. I still can't. Probably when it happened, I just thought it was another time. The last time I was carried, the last time I saw Brighton Pier or Trafalgar Square, I didn't know that it was. What would you have done if you had known? Astrid asked. I don't know. Ara frowned, her sight turned inwards with thought. Finally, she shrugged and said, I don't know, felt it? Astrid wasn't so sure. Some part of her was sick with excitement about taking off in the shuttle tomorrow, but the same part of her was gutted by grief. When she had said goodbye to her parents nine days ago, she had known for sure that she would never hug them again. The knowledge had quickened in her an impossible urge to tell them everything that they meant to her, to thank them for everything. But when the moment came to say it, to thank them for school fees, for her mother's paper-cut Christmas decorations, for every hot meal, for her bones, for her beating heart, she had only waved. You know, Astrid said as Ara climbed off the window ledge, sometimes it's a good thing when you don't know it's the last time. So I've been talking to Temi O. We've been talking about her debut novel, Do You Dream of Terror 2, which is out now in the UK from Simon and Shuster. Temi, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you for inviting me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.